First Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, and Nahor, Terah, Abram. The same is Abraham. And now turn with me also to Second Peter chapter 3. To understand the, uh, the work that is in front of us tonight, we need to remember and be well assured of a, of a principle that we have discussed before. We have a moral obligation as individuals and as corporate bodies, families, congregations, the particular church in its entirety, um, nation. Uh, we have the responsibility to be moving forward, never, uh, never backward. The motion should never be in the retrograde. We have the responsibility to be, uh, to be growing. Peter leaves us with with an exhortation, probably best understood at least immediately regarding individuals. But look with me at verse 17. After talking about how the unlearned and unstable rest the scriptures, twist them, he says this, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So you get um, like a dehortation, uh, not to be led away with the error of the wicked, not to fall from our steadfastness. Being led away or slipping, sliding, or falling, this would this would all be language of backsliding, language of uh, declension. But instead, he commends to us growth, a forward motion, both in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this presents to us um, something of a model especially when we when we turn our attention to the corporate manifestation and I, I do believe that in our genealogy we will see uh, the corporate dimension playing out ideally generationally um, like the present generation would appropriate all of the previous attainments in biblical understanding from the preceding generations. Uh, and hopefully early enough that 
advance would be would be possible. And then the hope would be that the rising generation would uh, appropriate the attainments of the present generation and earlier so that they in turn would have opportunity to add to that sacred deposit and pass it on to the next generation and so on. So uh, it's not that there are actually more things. Oh, I think we have, oh, thank you. Uh, it's not that we actually have more things in the scripture, but um, but the scripture is so full and so rich in the doctrine that it teaches and the practical implications of that, that even after three and a half millennia of interpretation, at least of its oldest parts, it is still not, it is still not ex exhausted. It's an amazing thing. Lots of lots of marks in the scripture to convince us of its divinity, but that's that's not among the least. But it will be most appreciated by by the most careful students. Three and a half millennia, greatest minds in the history of the world have been exercised upon the scripture, and yet the fruits of its its uh, doctrine and practical implications have still not been exhausted to uh, the present day. And so there's still more work to be done. And then in the turn that the church makes from, from study to uh, proclamation to a lost and dying culture, obviously the Lord, the Lord still has work for the church to do. The we, we are yet left in the world because the testimony that the world would have delivered to the world by the church is not yet complete. There's still work in front of us. So that would be the ideal. We appropriate the attainments of the preceding generation, hopefully early enough, uh, where we're in a position to add next generation does the same. And so there would always be forward motion. We'll see some of that uh, in in the family of the faithful in the in the genealogy, but but in practice, there certainly has been a, a great unevenness in families and in the and in the church. There are times when she is going forward. Uh, but there are times when she is in retrograde, when she is in uh, manifest declension. Let me try to illustrate some of this from what we have here in in First Chronicles. And before looking at that, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. You remember uh, last week we looked at Joshua chapter 24 and we saw, perhaps to our surprise, that the family of Terah and Ur of the Chaldees, they were serving other gods. So 
quite a declension from godly Shem to uh, a family that is uh, worshiping other gods. But something something marvelous happens. Verse 27, we'll talk about the implications. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Um, so a couple of things become clear about about the family, as as we talked about it last week. It's it's fairly clear that from Shem, at least to Eber, there in verse 25 of 1 Chronicles 1, the, the family continued in, uh, in faithfulness to the Lord and um, to the patriarchal religion before them. Somewhere from uh, Peleg to Terah, there was a, a rapid, profound declension in the family, perhaps made made all the more remarkable by the fact that the that the lives of the faithful fathers were so long. Uh, just by way of reminder, Shem is going to live to the days of Abraham, right? So those those faithful fathers are are living a long time, and yet. Their, their children are in declension right right before their faces, as it were. It is um, as sad as it is uh, remarkable. So somehow, by the time we get to, to Terah, the, the declension is so severe that Joshua, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can fully characterize it as 
worshiping other gods. So in the Joshua 24 narrative, Abraham is quite literally represented as a brand plucked from the fire. He, he is an idolater living in the midst of idolaters on his way to eternal perdition when the Lord, when the Lord visits him. Um, but what's interesting is after this, this time, this, this time of decline, by God's grace and mercy, he grants to Abraham a, a fresh revelation of himself and what appears to be the first enlargement of the deposit of revelation since the time of Noah. Uh, here he's going to, um, and we're, we're looking what a period of three and a half to four centuries, but now the, the deposit of revelation is going to be enlarged. And during Abraham's lifetime, it enlarged in some pretty uh, significant ways. Uh, Jesus is going to be uh, revealed with some, with some greater clarity during the time of, of Abraham. But the calling of Abraham, and I want you to notice at the beginning of chapter 12, the way the King James translators read it, now the Lord had said unto Abram, Notice there what's known in English as the pluperfect. Uh, the Hebrew doesn't have the pluperfect, strictly speaking. It can do things to signify that contextually. And that's the way that uh, the King James translators have taken it. So this call to Abram antedated the movement of Terah and the family to Haran as a, obviously a stopping place or a staging ground ultimately to make their way into into Canaan. It, on balance, there are other ways maybe to construct this, but in my own estimation, the, the King James translators have gotten it right here that this call to Abram antedated the move of the family to Haran on the way to uh, Canaan. And so with this enlargement of redemptive re revelation and the calling of Abraham out of darkness into light, a call to follow the Lord, which um, by God's grace, Abraham uh, obeys and, and follows after, it has an implication not just for Abraham, but for his, for his family as well. So when we look at uh, chapter 11, Terah had been uh, a worshiper of other gods. And yet, interestingly enough, he appears to, um, at the very least, have a, have a high regard for the, for the experience that Abraham has had. We're not given very many words. We're not told very much about Terah's um, true spiritual condition. But um, this is the behavior of somebody who looks like he believes what has been said, because the action he takes is a significant one. He, 
Remember, we have had an opportunity to consider just how important to the patriarchs the, the settlements were. We spent a lot of time with the with the table of nations. Terra has been willing to leave his ancestral inheritance and take off with Abraham to a land he knows not where exactly. That that is a that is a remarkable thing, and it does at least seem to speak well of of Terra's uh, spiritual condition. Maybe to say it more succinctly, um, Abraham's own conversion appears to have been a great help to Terra. I think we can at least say that with safety. Perhaps it became uh, a witness that by God's grace resulted in Tara's own conversion. This, uh, this activity certainly, certainly looks in that direction. Uh, one of Tara's sons was Haran, and Haran had a son by the name of Lot. And Lot also uh, travels with, with the family. He goes with, with Abraham. And uh, we know something about Lot's spiritual condition. When we read in Genesis, uh, Moses doesn't pull any punches with respect to Lot. We know and are well assured that he wasn't perfect. But we do know that um, he was a man inclined to divine things, even in his imperfection. Uh, his soul would be described as a holy soul. It was vexed by uh, the things that were taking place in, in Sodom and so on. So uh, here was a family that was, that was previously in the midst of terrible declension, but God has rescued Abraham, and the rescue of the one has had uh, good... Uh, spiritual benefits to uh, to others, and perhaps uh, perhaps for them the knowledge of the true God was not so far in the distant past as to be completely unknown. Perhaps for the for them this is the the resurrection and revival of a tradition that had been known, and that they they do know that they do remember. Um, also, one other thing, which isn't given here, I'll have to lean on your, your own reading and study of Genesis. But at some point, Nahor's family will follow up into that very same region of Haran. Uh, we, we know this because when uh, Abraham is looking for a son for Isaac, he sends his steward, uh, to Aram Naharayim, the Aram between the rivers. This would be Haran in that, that very same region. So uh, Nahor traveling with the family is not mentioned here, which is why it seems like maybe he came later. But, um, uh, but Rebecca would be uh, his grandchild, and we had... Um, uh, Laban, her brother, Laban will be will be very uh, will become very famous, and then of course Jacob will go back there and and marry Laban's daughters. 
But when we look at Laban and the family, we're, we're perhaps not now altogether surprised to find two things, that they do speak of the Lord. You'll find it all in caps, Jehovah. So the knowledge of the true religion has been revived and revived with some strength in the midst of the family. But you remember when uh, Jacob and Laban's daughters make their flight, that they make flight with uh, some of Laban's household idols. So some of the idolatry is still uh, cleaving to the family. It's, it's something of a, of a mixed portrait. But the true religion has been revived in the family. Um, and this might do a lot to explain why um, Abraham and Isaac would would fetch wives for their sons uh, back from from the family. There weren't too many places where you could go at this point in the whole world. Remember, the true religion had almost been completely snuffed out of the uh, the principal family that had been retaining it. Uh, not a lot of places you could go to find. Uh, a spouse, a believing spouse, and so uh, they fetch their their wives from there. So we have we have here something of a of a a model. We see uh, illustrated to us what we would hope to never see, the just terrible decline. But then we see something else. By God's grace, He is bringing uh, the family up. And uh, founding a, you know, founding a visible church, but bringing it up out of a family that had been, uh, been in decline. We could wish that for families and for the church, it was always a, a steady trajectory of upward motion. But in fact, what we find is a is a series of declines and then reformation from the declension and then uh, at various points even by God's grace an enlargement of the deposit of revelation and periods of great progress addition so on I wanted to uh, bring all of this up because it does help us it provides some material some models to help us assess where we are in history at, at various levels. When you think about um, the English-speaking people and the English-speaking world, we would have to say that generally, culturally, um, the English-speaking world is in horrific decline. It has been in decline since the 17th century, um, but but we are in a period that appears to be such a, a, a such a rapid decline. It almost takes the takes the breath away. Now that's kind of that's kind of easy uh, to uh, to assess when we when we turn our attention toward the. Um, towards, say, the, the visible church in a general way as she exists in all of these lands, I think we would have to say 
a similar kind of thing that most of recent church history in the English-speaking world has been a pretty sad history of uh, decline and, and backward motion to the point where um, far from the attainments of our fathers, we find even things like biblical literacy to be to just be so bad uh, also kind of a kind of a startling thing we might think that we're going to find more hope in the midst of the reformed churches in english-speaking lands and and maybe it's a little better perhaps a, perhaps a few illustrations might help that um that the declension is alive and well in in these bodies as well. As a very young man, I I first came under under care, the ministerial care of uh, the PCA, and um, so coming under care is a really easy thing, and so that meeting wasn't stressful for me at all. I just had to give an account of how I came to know the Lord and a little something of my sense of call to, to ministry. But I, I sat, that, that was my very first Presbytery meeting, and I sat as they examined other men for ordination. And, and what I saw, I, I didn't have enough experience to realize how remarkable and inappropriate, maybe even remarkably inappropriate it was. Uh, the, the presbytery was divided over an issue that they should have never been divided over. They were divided over the Sabbath day and over Sabbath keeping, and quite literally whether we should be keeping the Sabbath or not. And then I watched this uncomfortable thing as um, as candidates for the ministry would express their view of the matter, and then the Presbytery would debate through them. So, so for example, I remember really vividly a, a young man ex expressed a pretty weak view of the Sabbath, and so the, con the conservative portion of the Presbytery stood and challenged him. He would he would buckle and uh, say he would re-examine the issue, but then the uh, looser part of the presbytery would stand and kind of prop him back up again, saying there was nothing wrong with his practice, and and back and forth it went through. Oh, this poor this poor young man, um, but of course. The confessional commitments of of the church it had already been settled on that issue a long time ago. All of that was evidence of a of a very sad declension. My second presbytery meeting was actually in the OPC, and um, and who would have thought that um, that this would have been the kind of thing that you would experience. I didn't think too much of it at the time. I, I just thought of these as 
I don't know, these are just the realities. These are just the way things are. And yet I had a little sense at the time of just how inappropriate it was. But I, during one of the, the coffee breaks, I listened as a, as a very vociferous, loud, I mean, he was a loud guy, loud minister. Um, uh, he was talking about the issue of subscription in general, the folly of a, a strict subscription, and uh, just how crazy it was to think that those old rules concerning uh, uh, like, like prohibiting not only the degrees of consanguinity in marriage, but also the same degrees in affinity. In other words, you can't uh, marry uh, any of your blood re relatives within a certain degree, and any relationships you've contracted by marriage would also be forbidden within those same degrees. And he was talking about the folly and antiquated nature of this and how obviously strict subscription was was absurd. Well, that almost sounds like a detail, right? Um, not something we come into contact with with very much. But on the other hand, I was encouraged to study the standards, take them take them seriously. That was the position of my particular OPC church, and I had started at se seminary, and I'd already heard Carl Truman say, by way of challenge to students, if you don't see the connection between the proof texts and the doctrines, then you should not assume that they didn't know what they're doing. You should assume that you're ignorant of the history of exegesis, right? So this had already tempered any sort of grand pretensions I might have had to exceed the wisdom of my fathers in that regard. Well, there came a time when I studied that chapter on marriage and divorce very quickly, very closely, and was, was preaching through it. And I never knew when I was doing so how much it would help me practically later on in life, even in that detail when, um, which he thought was so absurd. So one of the fruits, as I was studying that, one of the sweet fruits, it's not easy to think about marriage, divorce, and incest is certainly an ugly thing, but when I stu studied the relevant text with Andrew Willett and his commentary on Leviticus and um, uh, some other parallel passages in Numbers, what became clear was uh, the relationships that are contracted in marriage are every bit as real, lasting, and binding as our blood relationships. And that's a sweet truth in and of itself. I mean, for me, that meant that um, Amanda's parents were every bit as much uh, my parents as hers. It was only the manner of entering into that relationship that was different. She entered into that relationship by blood. I entered into it by marriage, but um, the nature of the relationship was the same. Um, now, the way that ended up being very helpful is 
um, with the dissolution of the marriage, nevertheless, I had a, a keen apprehension that my relationship with her family was not dissolved because it was indeed my family. That little bit of confessional fidelity and my patience with it has ended up being tremendously meaningful to my family in a, in a practical way. But I guess maybe to summarize all of that and bring us to the main topic, I, I didn't realize, because those things just seemed to be the way things were, I didn't realize what, what startling indications of decay those things were in the Reformed churches. At that point in my life, I thought of the the Reformed churches as being quite quite a, quite far ahead, and and maybe that's true in a way. But when you consider the the direction of their motion, it's not forward; it's backwards, and that is always an unhealthy thing. So when we consider the the general visible church in these lands, and maybe even the Reformed churches, uh, it doesn't look healthy. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look like that model of grabbing hold of uh, the attainments of our particular church and, and moving forward. It seems like a continual studying of arguments to put the attainments away and to move backwards and the reformed churches have not been exempt from that now this brings us to um, to a consideration of uh, our our particular church and in her lawful manifestation um, those few scattered throughout the land who, who take the attainments very seriously and are, are trying to gather them up and to move forward. You, you will have to judge for yourself, but I'll, I will tell you how it seems to me. I think it would still be fairly said of us that corporately we have not yet attained to the wisdom of our fathers. In other words, um, this is still a season in in the life of the church to be uh, to be gathering up and reappropriating the attainments because there are still some things that have slipped out of the basket of gathered things, if if you will. We we have still lost some things and fumbled those things. And retrieval is is important. And so, um, for a couple of different reasons, I'm I'm less optimistic about about advances, although it's certainly possible. But because theology is always in its nature systematic, if we still have missing pieces, it is hard to it is hard to advance until the until the pieces have been filled in. Uh, it's like trying to do a puzzle when you have missing pieces. It get, more pieces get filled in, the faster it starts going, right? Um, 
it's kind of it's kind of that dynamic the system of theology seems to dictate that it, at least to some degree uh, also we're we're comparatively small comparatively few minds uh, working on these things uh, there so not not super optimistic but but who knows what the Lord will do? And it doesn't take very many minds if if the Lord is in it to make an advance in this or that thing. But it is but whether whether we have those things or we don't have those things, um that's the goal. Right? And so even just to remember that that the testimony has not yet been fully delivered, so we still have work to do, and we're still we're still working toward the goal of advancing the testimony uh, before this lost and dying world. That is an important thing to remember, an important thing to keep in mind. Now, when we come to consider ourselves as families and individuals, I I think we can do some of this. Uh, together with respect to parents we still have the job of discipleship we need to be learning we need to be growing we need to be coming to a, a fuller and richer uh, understanding of the attainments we need to try to fully appropriate what has uh, come down to us that is important for us as individuals it's important for us as we stand in the midst of the body of the church. But you have to first be a good student before you can be a good teacher. And as we as we learn these things, we want to turn around and hand them out to our children uh, just, as, just as quickly as we can. So my hope is that, you know, as I learn something in my 50th year, if I can hand it to my child in the 16th or 17th year um, they will be able to meditate upon those things longer they will be able to contemplate the connection between that truths and the other truths of the christian system uh, for a much more lengthy time they can consider the practical import and bearing of those things for a longer time they're in mind for all of the exercises of life and and so on. And in that way, we can put our children in a much better position to advance. But now my young people, my, my lovelies, if that's the job of parents, then obviously your job, and you've heard me say it a lot, is, is to receive you want to be as eager to take from your parents as they are to give to you in this regard. So if you find them eager to teach and to impart biblical instruction and wisdom, you have to be every bit as willing a student to, to receive it just as fast as they can hand it out. This will put you in your best position as an individual. This will be put you in your best position for early adulthood when you will likely be beginning your own family, right? Um, uh, not half-baked, but, but fully equipped 
for uh, the raising of yet uh, another generation. And it will also be in that that uh, the hope for advance with respect to the church will be be the strongest. But a lot of that is going to begin with your own commitments to uh, discipleship. And so just remember, what you want is the wisdom of God. And you will find that in the scripture. And as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will also furnish you with uh, the Holy Spirit. But in the scriptures, you also learn about other, other helps in learning what's in the scripture. And your parents and your pastors are mentioned there specifically as gifts of God. Pastors as gifts of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ to help you apprehend and learn these things so that you might advance. But one final thing for thinking about um, going forward, and again to turn my attention to, to parents, I don't know about you, you're probably like me in this regard. I, I have always prayed that my children would exceed me in this regard, um, that they would have these things at a much younger age than I was able to have them, and so they would be able to work on them for a larger portion of their, uh, of their adult lives. Um, my hope has always been that they, that they would see God more clearly uh, that they would walk with him more closely. That's always been the desire. But I've also seen it happen, even with parents that desire that when, when their children exceeded them, uh, pride prevented them from following after. If it is our desire that our children should exceed us, then then there might come that day when when um, while we are yet living, their, their wisdom has come to exceed our own. And may the gracious God of heaven remember us in our, in our old age and we would take occasion from, from our children for yet, for yet further improvement. May God ever be our help and may God visit his people again so that we might begin to advance again. Let us pray together.